his name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's look to God's word together in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's a letter towards, towards the end of the New Testament. And if you want to follow along on those blue Bibles in front of you, it's on page 989. 989 on those blue Bibles in front of you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've been working through these two letters in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, over a number of weeks now, and we're coming almost to the end. We have this week and next week, and then we'll wrap up these letters. But this morning, we're going to cover chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 2, I'll start reading in verse 13. God, through the Apostle Paul, says this. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. One of my least favorite things in the world are amusement park rides that spin. I hate them with a very intense passion. I do not like them. How many of you enjoy spinny rides? Anybody in the club? Okay, some of you. How many of you are on my team? You do not like, okay, good, thank you. I do, I'll do roller coasters, I'll do different rides, but rides that spin over and over, I, I do not like them. I, I try to avoid, if you can say this during a sermon, I try to avoid throwing up if it's possible. Like I don't seek opportunities for that to happen. And spinny rides cause that in my life. I don't like that dizzy, unstable feeling. Like, not only do I enjoy the ride when I'm on the ride, I do I not enjoy it. I also don't enjoy it when the ride's over. So that's just a horrible combination. So even that feeling you get off of it, and you're kind of dizzy, you're not feeling very stable, I'm just trying to find something to hold on to for a minute. Y'all can pray for my wife when we go to theme parks because if our kids, okay, can we go on that? And it's just like the saucer ride that just spins. She always has to go because otherwise, I mean, I'm a wimp. You can make fun of me. It will not bother me at all. But otherwise, I, I just, I'm not going to enjoy the rest of the day. It's going to be miserable. But not only do I dislike that feeling after some kind of crazy ride like that, but I dislike it even more. It's in a different way, of course. But dislike it even more when I feel that unstable, dizzy feeling in, in life in general. Some of you might know what I'm talking about. Not the same kind of unstable as a spinny ride, but the kind where you feel like 
circumstances and emotions are throwing you back and forth and you can't find a solid place to hold on to. Do any of you know the kind of experience I'm talking about in life where it just seems like things are coming and coming and you can't find a solid spot, a solid footing in life? Because there's a measure of instability in all of our lives. And and one of the It's not always in some dramatic, huge way, but in a way that causes doubts and uncertainty about who we are, that causes doubts and uncertainty about what's going on in the world, why things are the way that they are. And we live in a world that is aching for stability. Our world is aching for some form of stability. And one of the ways that we can see that is by noticing all the different ways people around us, and ourselves included, are grasping for stability. We're all trying to find it somewhere. Some are trying to find that something something solid to hold on to in a relationship. If I have a right relationship, that will give me stability. Some people are trying to find it in a certain level of income. Some people are trying to find it in a political party. If this political party wins, that means things are stable. Some people are trying to find it in a job or what's not happening or what is happening to me. But we all know that our stability in life is only as solid as what we're holding on to. And we're going to see in 2 Thessalonians, end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, that stability in life is directly connected to stability in our faith. That there is no stability in life apart from stability in faith. This letter that Paul wrote many, many times centuries ago, was written to a community of Christians that were facing intense persecution, and a kind that we can't really relate to in our country, in our world at this time. But they were being persecuted over and over for their faith in Christ. They're being knocked off balance by false teaching that was coming their way. And so what Paul's doing in this letter is he's giving them truths to help stabilize them. He's giving them something solid to hold on to because they don't have anything around them that can fill that for them. And the same thing can be true for Christians today. These truths can be stabilizing truths for us. Because a faith that is stable is a faith that endures. A faith that is steadfast is a faith that keeps going. But the key point you're going to see in these verses is that the starting point of all of this is not our own stability. That may sound like I just took everything I just said and flipped it on its head. But the starting point here is a stability completely outside of us, found in God and God alone. So as we work through these verses, you're going to see Paul bring out attributes of God, bring those to the surface as anchor points for us when we face unstable times. So the first thing he's going to say is, I want you to be encouraged by the love of God. Be encouraged by the love of God. The section starts in a way that shows us it's connected to what Paul just said. Look with me at verse 13. We're kind of coming in mid-thought, mid-flow of writing here. He says, verse 13, but we ought to always give thanks to God for you. So that, that word at the beginning when he says, but we ought to always give thanks to God for you, he's, it's connected to what he just said. And last week we were in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, where Paul corrected this wrong thinking that was spreading around their church. And they heard from Paul that Jesus was going to come back from um, heaven one day and was going to return to earth. But then they heard from these other false teachers that that had already happened. 
And it caused this crazy confusion among their church, among their relationships. And so Paul wrote to assure them it has not happened yet, but when it does happen, all evil is going to be completely wiped off the face of the earth. And God's judgment is going to fall on those who reject him. Now, in verse 13, Paul's giving this contrast, and he's saying, God's going to one day reject, judge those who reject him, but we always give thanks to God for you. We always give thanks to God for you, because you can imagine this talk of God's judgment, it can make us uneasy. It can make us feel unstable. And so Paul's saying, I'm not talking about you. I give thanks to God for you. He says the events of the future, the events of your life right now, it may unsettle you, but we thank God for the ways we see his work in your life. And here's the specifics of his encouragement. Let's look at verse 13 again. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. Here's the first phrase that we're looking at. Brothers beloved by the Lord. Brothers beloved by the Lord. He says you are loved by God. The God of the universe loves you. Unfortunately, you don't have to be around church very long. You don't really have to be around church at all. For that phrase the God of the universe loves you, to sound really flat and dull. There was a, a Peanuts cartoon, Charlie Brown cartoon I saw a little while back. And in it, I can't remember all the specifics right now off the top of my head, but Linus was talking to Lucy about the love of God. And he said something about, isn't it amazing that God loves us? And Lucy's response was, yeah, why wouldn't he? And you know, if you know the Peanuts cartoons, that's pretty consistent with Lucy's personality and attitude. But sometimes I think we view the love of God that way. Like we hear, God loves you, Jesus loves you, the Lord loves you. And we, we would never say it out loud, but, well, yeah, of course he does. Why wouldn't he? And I think we are far too easily bored with the love of God. We're far too easily unimpressed by the love of God. And what Paul does that's so helpful is he takes that phrase that might seem flat to us and he unfolds it. And brings some dimension to it. All, all in verse 13. He explains what it means that they're loved by God. He says that they're brothers beloved by the Lord. And then the next part is because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. It's almost identical to what Paul wrote them in the first letter. So we know if he wrote it in the first letter and he's writing it again in the second letter, it's important that they remember this and know this. In the first letter, this was in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4. He says, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. It's almost the exact same thing. Brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. He says to these Christians, and if you're a Christian here today, hear this truth for yourself as well. God lovingly chose to rescue your soul from the very beginning. That's what he means by first fruits. From the beginning, or maybe your translation says first fruits. But, but this truth is echoed in another one of Paul's letters. He writes about this all the time. So it's meant to be a real source of encouragement to our hearts when we feel unstable, when we feel uneasy. He writes this in Ephesians 1 verse 4. He says it this way there. Listen to this. 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the world was created, God planned to create you, and God planned to save you, and to give you eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's that's the love of God. Be encouraged by the love of God. But that's not the only part. On top of that, the next thing he said, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. I know there's a lot of churchy words in there that may be familiar or unfamiliar to you. But what he's saying is God set you apart with the plan to give you the gift of faith, to lead you to turn away from what is false and believe in what is true. To believe the gospel, to put your faith in Jesus Christ. And notice here, this is meant to be an anchor for us. His love in this sentence comes before our faith. God does not love you because of your faith. You have faith in him because of his love. If God only loved me because of my faith, then I would see his love going up and down as I saw my faith going up and down. But when I know that God's love comes before my faith, and that my faith sits on the foundation of his love, not vice versa, no matter how my faith ebbs and flows, weakens or strengthens, his love is steady and constant. So when I feel unstable, that's a place of stability. But that's not it. There's more. He keeps piling on these layers of God's love. Look at verse 14. On top of him choosing us in the beginning, on top of him leading us to faith in Christ, verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He did all this through the message of the gospel so that, why did God choose us and lead us to faith in Christ and make us like Jesus. Why is he doing all of this? The middle of verse 14, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has saved you in order to get you to glory. You've never seen such a rags to riches story as what you see in your own soul when the Lord saves you. He doesn't just bring you from a really bad situation and bring you to a good situation and say, okay, you're on your own, good luck with everything. He brings us from dead in our sin to alive in Christ and then eternally with Jesus forever in glory. These are the layers and piles of God's love. He's saying no matter how deep your grief, no matter how hard your circumstances may be, God has called you to salvation with the goal of getting you to eternity in heaven and he will not be stopped from getting you there. I heard a pastor say once that the the Christian life is not a straight line to glory. It's not like God saves you and then everything's smooth until heaven. We know that. The Christian life is not a straight line to glory, he said, but he will get you there. This is all because of the love of God. We didn't ask for it. We did nothing to earn it or deserve it. He lovingly does this kind of saving, rescuing work in all those who put their faith in Jesus. So when you hear the phrase, you're beloved by the Lord, or the Lord loves you. That's not boring. That's not dull. That's not flat. J.C. Ryle said that the love of Christ towards his people is a deep well which has no bottom. So let's not view the love of God just like a, a cup that's on a green on a golf course about that deep. Let's view it as a bottomless well 
that has no end to it. And this is why we can start to see why Paul would choose to tell them this. They're going through persecution. They're hearing false teaching. And he's just going to start talking about God's love. Is that a little insensitive? Is he not really in in sync with what's going on in their world? No, he's very in sync with what's going on in their world. And he talks to them about the love of God because the difficulty of their circumstances was so dizzying. They needed something outside of them to hold on to. They needed something outside of them that would be a foundation. This is why he says, verse 15, this is kind of the, the hub of the whole deal here. Verse 15, so then, so because God has loved you in such a way, because he chose you before the foundation of the world, because he led you to faith in Christ, because he's going to get you to glory, so then stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. He, he's trying to get their roots deep in this truth. It's, it's like when you go to the, to the ocean. Maybe some of you have done this, and if I'm the only one, again, you can come make fun of me just like the thing at the beginning. I'm giving you a lot of ammo. It will not hurt my feelings. It's fine, okay? But when you go to the ocean and you're standing at the part where the waves are just coming in, and you know if you stand there long enough and your feet just start sinking deeper and deeper into the sand, and sometimes you kind of move like this and try to get them deeper and deeper down into the sand. You get, anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, thank you. I just felt like I was totally by myself there. I got a little insecure there for a second. But, but the deeper and deeper your feet get in the sand right there, the less and less the waves knock you back off balance. And what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to, I want to get you deeper and deeper into the truth of the love of God so as these difficulties come your way, you're not thrown off. You're not knocked off balance. You're not shaken. You're not alarmed. He wants them to get their roots so deep in God's love in the past when God chose them, God's love in the present, when he gave them faith in Christ, God's love in the future, when he's going to get them to glory, that they're not shaken, but rather, as he says in verse 15, they stand firm. They stand firm. And what he says there in verse 15, it's a direct connection to what he's already said in this chapter. Remember, the whole thing's kind of fitting together. There's a connection here. And he says in verse 2, we saw this last week, jump up to, with verse two, to verse 2 with me of chapter 2. He says, we don't want you to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. That's the opposite of standing firm. So don't be shaken, don't be alarmed, stand firm. He says, we don't want you to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Now jump back down to verse 15 and listen to how it sounds familiar. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So he's saying, don't be shaken by preaching and letters that turn you away from the truth. Stand firm in what you know is true. Hold on to this truth. Cling to the truth of the love of God. And what this involves is this involves you and I continually preaching these kinds of truths to ourselves. Giving ourselves sermons throughout the week. And putting ourselves before God's word so our roots can grow deep here. As we remind ourselves of the truth of who God is and what he's done to save us. So stability and steadfastness, the first anchor point, is it comes from being encouraged by the love of God. Not some kind of stale, dull view of the love of God, but an ever-growing, ever-expanding view of the love of God. 
the next anchor point he's going to give us is he's going to say, I want you to be comforted by the strength of God. Comforted by the strength of God. In this part, we're just going to look at verses 16 and 17. Notice what Paul prays for them. He's going to say, in light of God's love, here's how I'm praying for you. Verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. May our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father who loved us, we just saw that. We just unpacked that and unfolded that. And then he says, and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. He says God gave us eternal comfort. Not just a little band-aid of of comfort for temporary one-time use or temporary circumstance or just one moment in your life, but eternal comfort. Forever comfort, everlasting comfort from the Lord. This is the kind of comfort that comes from knowing that your biggest problem in life, your sin, my sin, has been completely taken care of by the best possible solution. Your Savior, Jesus Christ. And that being saved by him lasts forever. This is eternal comfort. Not just I feel better for a moment, but I have comfort that lasts longer than the hard circumstances I'm going through. And then here's the prayer he prays for them. He prays that Jesus, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father would comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. He he doesn't first think about praying for God to change their circumstances. It wouldn't be bad to pray for that. It's good that we we can pray that, God, would you heal this person? God, would you bring them out of this difficult situation that they're going through? That's, That's okay to pray for. But the first thing he prays for is for God to comfort their hearts and establish or encourage and strengthen their hearts in the midst of their circumstances. He doesn't pray that they would find strength in themselves, but that they would find strength from the Lord, that God's strength would comfort their hearts, and establish their hearts. He's praying for the deepest part of their beings. Not the physical organ beating inside their chest, but the place of their desires and emotions and thoughts and decisions. May God bring comfort there. May God bring encouragement there. May he establish your heart. That's a stabilizing word. Establish. He's praying, may the strength of God bring stability and steadfastness to your heart to your emotions, to your thoughts, to your decisions. May they not be thrown back and forth by circumstances, but may they be stabilized on the truth of who God is and what he says. It's a great prayer to pray for one another, especially as we see each other going through difficult circumstances or you see people around you at your work or in your family or in your neighborhood or at your school going through difficult circumstances. God, would you comfort their hearts and establish their hearts in every good work and word? May they know that you love them and that you've given them eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Let's let's pray God's word for each other. This is a great opportunity to do that. Because the encouragement here is that our salvation is in God's hands both now and in the future. 
There's never a time where God says, okay, I'm handing you the wheel. You control your salvation. No, he's saying it's always in his hands. He's given you eternal comfort and good hope. And so may he comfort you and establish you. We, as the people of God, have this good hope through grace, meaning we have a hope that cannot be shaken. We have a hope that even when we're shaken, it doesn't affect the hope. Because we have a God of unrivaled strength. We have a God who's able to hold us and get us to that hope, to that glory like we saw in the earlier verses. You hear something similar echoed in Proverbs chapter 23 where it says this, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. He alone, God alone, can steady our hearts when we feel shaken by the world around us. So when you feel that way, cry out to him. Ask God to draw from the endless well of his eternal comfort and provide you with the comfort for the struggles you're facing. Ask him to steady your heart through that good heavenly hope he's given us. Because the strength of God is a comforting encouragement to our weak hearts. So lean on him. Hold on to him. Stand firm through him. The last attribute that Paul's going to lead us towards is to be secured by the faithfulness of God. Be secured by, by the faithfulness of God. So if we're encouraged by the love of God and comforted by the strength of God and now secured by the faithfulness of God. I don't want us to see, envision Paul and his team as writing this letter from a really easy, comfortable situation. It's not like he's sitting in some really easy, fancy, comfortable house somewhere while the Thessalonians are going through this brutal persecution and difficulty. No, he knows what they're going through because he's going through it himself. He has his own struggles, his own difficulties. He can relate to what they're doing. That's why he says this in chapter 3, verse 1. He's just prayed for them, and now he says in verse 3, sorry, chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. They're facing the same kind of persecution and hardship that the Thessalonians are facing. And Paul says, pray that we would be delivered from these people. Pray that God would rescue us from this. All of this is hard. All of this is difficult. People are against us, but pray that the Lord keeps us going so that the gospel can keep going, is what Paul prays. When he says in verse 1, when he says the word of the Lord, he's talking about the message of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done to save sinners like me and you. And he says it's a really interesting prayer. Pray that the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored. The image that Paul's pulling on here, pulling from, is the image of a runner competing in the Olympic Games. And this runner speeding ahead of the other runners and then being honored in their victory. Being crowned the, the winner of the race. And so Paul's not describing himself, not saying he's the runner. But he's saying the good news of the gospel is the runner. And pray that the gospel would keep spreading. 
It would keep gaining victory over false messages and false religions that compete with the gospel of Jesus. Pray that the gospel would keep running around the world and winning the hearts of people. That's what he means by honored, that people would believe it and embrace the truth of Christ. But Paul knows, and you and I have experienced, that as the gospel runs around the world, it runs around the world through the people of God. And that's why he writes, pray for us. Pray for us that the gospel would keep spreading. You and I need to pray like this, church. I think this would be a great prayer for us to commit to pray every week, to commit to pray every morning as you get ready for your day. Pray this for yourself. Pray this for each other. Pray this for other Christians and churches in our community. Pray this for other missionaries and churches around the world that God would cause the gospel to speed ahead and be honored, be believed, that the gospel would win out over false messages and false religions in our world. And then Paul turns from his situation to the situation of the Thessalonians. He says in verse 2, he says, Pray that we would be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Paul essentially writes, following Jesus in this world is hard, and it will continue to be hard, but the Lord is faithful. The difficulty of living for Christ in this world does not void the faithfulness of God. Not all have faith, he says, but the Lord is faithful. The reactions of other people to the Lord does not change the Lord. When people reject the gospel, it does not weaken Christ. He's faithful, he's steady, he's unwavering. So we can stand firm, we can stay steadfast in the face of sorrow and temptation and opposition because our God is eternally faithful. That's why he assures them, he will establish you. He just prayed for that, right? May he comfort you and establish you. Now he says, he will establish you. It's a stabilizing word again. And guard you against the evil one. In those moments that you want to give up following Jesus, in those moments that you want to give in to temptations, in those moments that going with the flow of the world looks a lot more attractive than walking with Jesus, Paul says, God will guard you from the evil one. He is faithful. Trust him. Don't be deceived by the lies of Satan. Stand firm in the truth of God, and he will establish you and guard you. And he ends this whole section with another short prayer that really summarizes everything that we've seen. He says in verse 5, may the Lord, we prayed this for the children as, as we dedicated them at the beginning. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts. He's praying for their hearts again. May the Lord direct the deepest part of who you are to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. The word direct is a word that we've all experienced and seen. You can see it especially with when you're around little kids and, and, and you're asking them to do something, but they're distracted by this over here and you're saying, no, I want you to, 
I want you to do this. I, no, I need you to come over here and wash your hands. And there's, see this chocolate brownie over here. No, I need you to, you're directing them back this way. And Paul's praying, may God, when you see, all you see is the difficulty, or all you see is how it seems to be better to not follow Jesus, or all you see is how hard parenting is, or how hard your marriage is, or how hard work is. Paul's saying, may God direct your heart from that to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. We will endure and we will persevere when we know and experience the love of God. We talked about that earlier. May you direct your heart to the love of God and at the same time, the steadfastness of Christ. We will endure as we remember how Jesus has endured. And that he is steadfast makes us steadfast. This is the foundation of standing firm. When we're talking about trying to find something outside of us that's solid to hold on to, this is it. This is the source of stability for every Christian in this world and every generation of Christians. We can be steady because Jesus is steady. We can be stand firm because Jesus stands firm. As one pastor wrote that I read this week, it is only because God is steadfast that we too can be steadfast. So the, the comforting truth as we come to the end of this is steadfastness and stability does not come from the strength of your faith, but from the object of your faith. Steadfastness in this world, stability in your life does not come from how strong your faith is, but from who your faith is in. You can have the strongest faith in the world in something that's completely unstable. So it's not about the strength of your faith, but what you're trusting in. It's like a little kid that's walking across a high platform on a playground. Does it do them any good to hold their own hand? No. If they're walking across the balance beam, oh, I'm about to fall, grab my own hand. That won't keep them from falling. But if that little kid reaches out and grabs the hand of a grown-up next to them, then they can finish walking across the platform. In the same way, it's not about our hold on the Lord that gives us stability, but first his hold on us. The truth that Jesus is steadfast means his love for you will not waver. His strength in you will not weaken. His faithfulness over you will not fail. As challenges arise, as resistance comes, he will not cave in. He will not give in. He will not quit. His love will hold firm. He is secure. He is stable. He is settled. He is, he is steadfast. And his steadfastness over time makes us steadfast. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. There's, there's our steadfastness, our hope, for he who promised is faithful. There's his steadfastness. His steadfastness, we can rest secured in his faithfulness, and that will make us faithful as well. So when you and I feel dizzy from the ever-changing parts of life, when you and I feel discouraged because of trials, when you and I feel unloved because of our failures, our stability is only as solid as what we're holding on to. 
All of us are aching for stability, so what are you trying to hold on to? Where are you trying to find that stability? And the beautiful good news of the gospel is it's not really something you find, but someone that finds you. That the God of love and strength and faithfulness seeks us out, brings us to himself, and gives us a stability in him that nothing in this world could ever bring. Isaiah chapter 33, verses 5 and 6, wraps all this to a close when the prophet says this, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and listen to this part, and he, the Lord, will be the stability of your times. He will be the stability of your times. May we hope and rest and be strengthened and be comforted by him and him alone.